Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and welcome to all for our Sunday morning Bible study. Whether you're here in person in our gymnasium or whether you're joining us in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM or literally around the world on KFUO.org, welcome. We're glad you can join us in the study of God's Word this morning. For those here in our gymnasium, there are Bibles on the side if you need one on a cart over there. We're going to be Diving into Luke chapter 7 today, Pastor Wade finished Luke chapter 6 with you last week, and just want to make it clear that this will be the last Sunday we'll be looking at Luke for a while. Pastor Smith will be back with us next week, and we'll resume the study of Romans. So hopefully you won't have too much whiplash with the back and forth in these books, but he will pick up uh, where he left off with the book of Romans, and we'll finish that off. And we are, well, we can discuss this later, but we are thinking about just kind of stopping where we're going to stop today with Luke and then come back next summer and, and pick up from there and go further into the gospel of Luke as Pastor Smith will take next summer off, I assume anyway. So we'll finish, maybe finish Luke 7 today. I'm not sure if we will or not. And then again, next Sunday, begin back with the study of Romans again, where Pastor Smith left off. Prior to that, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings to us that you shower down upon us each and every day, both as individuals and collectively as your church. We thank you especially for the gift of your precious Son, for his life and death and resurrection once again, for the forgiveness and eternal life that is ours through him. We thank you also for your word to us, and especially this word that we are studying this day, showing us again the life and ministry of your Son as he came to live the perfect life that none of us can live, and then go to the cross in our place. Send your Holy Spirit, we pray, upon our study of the Word today, that it, he may continue to lead us into all truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Just again to review, we're leaving behind now a section of preaching and teaching that Jesus was doing in Luke chapter 6, including what is called the Sermon on the Plain, on that flat area, level area. And you'll recall that that preaching included both Beatitudes, bless, blessed are the, and also woes, woe to all those who. And then particularly last week, a long section on living a God-pleasing life. In other words, how would we live? How should we live as Christians? And topics such as loving one another, forgiving one another, and so on. So today we are leaving behind teaching and preaching with Jesus, and we are going to see miracles taking place. And remember, this is the pattern in Luke. We see this, we've seen this before, that there are miracles and then there are sections of teaching and preaching. And today we're moving into the, into the, the miracles. We're going to move to the city, the town of Capernaum, which We've said before, up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is a sort of almost a headquarters for Jesus. He, he in his uh, ministry in the region of Galilee, that's a key town that he is in a lot, and he'll return there uh, today. We have major characters we're going to look at today that I would say are sort of, you might even say on the fringes a bit in terms of society. We're first going to see a Roman centurion soldier. Actually, we won't even see him. He's not even going to meet Jesus. He's going to send two sets of envoys to talk with Jesus, but a Gentile, okay, obviously, 
Secondly, we're going to see a widow whose son Jesus is going to bring back from death to life once again. And widows were a, a very precarious uh, condition or situation in society at that time. We'll talk about that. We're going to see John the Baptist and his disciples as he sends a question to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? And then finally, a sinful woman. I'm not sure we're going to get to that one. Let's read now, starting at verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. I want to read the whole account, and then we'll go back and talk about individual parts of it. So starting at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. All right, let's go back now and, and look at individual uh, sections and verses here. First of all, that first verse is sort of a transition now, okay? Luke is letting us know that we're going from the preaching and teaching he, he now completed or uh, finished all the things he was saying and teaching in the hearing of the people, so including that sermon on the plain that we just talked about. He enters Capernaum, talked about that again, a, a major city in terms of his ministry in that area, a lot to talk about. We talked about Capernaum before, where Peter, Peter's mother-in-law's house is still there. You can go and see it. It's being excavated and they built a Catholic church over it. They've got a synagogue there, and right under the synagogue is the synagogue that Jesus, we think Jesus actually preached and taught in, I should say, when he was there. And no extra charge, you can see what a millstone looks like there also. Right next to the synagogue, they've got a bunch of millstones uh, laying out there. So if you go there, you can see all those, all those things today. Now, a centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier who is in charge of 100 soldiers. It's an easy one to remember. Centuries, 100. Centurion is a Roman soldier in charge of 100 soldiers. So he would be a career soldier in the Roman army. The position of a centurion back at that time was held by society in high regard. I think in general, the way we hold the army or you know our armed forces military brass, so to speak, the higher ranking officers and a great deal of respect. And it was back at that time as well. They were well-paid. Some of them were wealthy. 
And did you pick up from the text why we think this guy was uh, pretty well off? What did he do? He actually built the synagogue for them, right? And so we think this guy, like many of the other centurions, was pretty well off uh, financially. And uh, so he's, he noticed there, he, he could be, we think, you know, you think about this, a Gentile building a synagogue for Jewish people. And so there is speculation, we don't know for sure, whether he was a, in a group of people called God-fearers, who at that time were Gentiles, who didn't necessarily convert to Judaism, but they loved the worship and they loved hearing about the word of God from the Old Testament, of course, as it would have been proclaimed. Now, we don't know for sure, but it just seems like, again, he builds this synagogue for the Jews, and we wonder did he, what, about his life. You know, was he a uh, life of faith in particular? We're not sure, okay? Now, let's take a look also. He, this centurion now, he has a servant or a slave, actually. It's the word doulos in Greek, a slave. Slaves at that time were thought of as members of the household in most cases. They were highly valued. Again, we always have to make this distinction because when we talk about slaves in Bible times, I think the immediate thing we do is think back to slavery in our, in our nation. And it was much, much different than that in Bible times. Think of the letter, Paul's letter Philemon is a good example of that, of how valuable slaves and how valued they were by their masters, by their owners. So in this case, this centurion has a servant who was sick and at the point of death. We're not told exactly about what the illness was or what the disease was, but he is near death. Now notice here, and again, it says it was highly valued by him. Verse three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, it's interesting. How did he hear about Jesus? Who told him? What did he hear about Jesus? Probably heard about all the miracles that we've been looking at and all the wonders that Jesus has been doing. So he hears about Jesus and must be concluding if Jesus is doing all of this, healing all of these other people, he can help my slave who is near death, near the point of death. Okay. And so notice there, he said, he doesn't go himself. He sends, notice here, elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal. Now this word, uh, word is translated heal here is also the word that's used for saving someone. It's sozo in Greek. And commentators wonder, is there more, in, does Luke intend more than that here? But at any rate, come and heal or save him, these elders are asking. Kind of ironic that a Gentile is sending Jewish elders to a Jewish teacher, isn't it? Uh, a Jewish rabbi in the case of Jesus here. He doesn't know any more than that at this point. Verse 4, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. And what is the reason that the elders give that he, he's, he's really worthy to have you do this? Because he what? He, two things, loves the people, loves our people, loves us, right? Loves our people. And then the kicker, he built the synagogue for us, right? So it's sort of almost a, you know, 
if, if he had done this, I don't know about, but you know, he, he really is worthy because look at what he did for us, right? Thinking that this will sway Jesus, right? He did this good work for us. And Jesus goes with them and they get not far from the house. And again, the centurion sends friends. Notice here again, I, it's dawned on me again yesterday that the centurion himself never comes face to face with Jesus. First, it's these Jewish elders that he sends. And when Jesus gets closer now, he sends friends and saying to him, so there, the friends are saying, passing on this message from the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Interesting. The Jews thought he was worthy, right, to have this done for him. That's exactly what they say to Jesus. But this guy is so humble. He says to Jesus, you know, passes on the message of Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And we're wondering here if there's also involved the, the Jewish clean and unclean, that he's not, he's, he's respecting the fact that Jesus, as a Jew, would be considered unclean if he came into the house of a Gentile. So maybe that's in play here as well. Or, and or, it's just a general state, statement rather, of his humility. And just think of the irony there. A guy who is a highly respected officer in the Roman military is saying, I'm not worthy. That's probably pretty rare, right? And again, this leads to speculation about his spiritual life beyond. We're not, we're not told, but is he a God-fearer at this point? We just don't know. He certainly is, is, pra is practicing, it in the words of John the Baptist that we looked at before, the fruit of repentance, isn't he? Building the synagogue and the humility that he has. So he says, I do not presume to come to you. You know, I'm not, I'm not worthy to come into your presence. And here's the kicker. Say the word, say the word, the Greek logos, say the word and let my servant be healed. There's two ways you can translate that. One is let my servant be healed. The other way is my servant in effect must be healed. There are two ways you can translate that, but either way, he's expressing the faith, isn't he? that Jesus just has to speak the word, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too, verse 8, I too, or I also, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, my word, when I say it, those things happen, right? It's an automatic that it happens. Just like you say the word and my servant will be healed. Credible verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had, had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amazing that Jesus marvels at the faith of this centurion. Why is it so ironic 
In fact, Jesus even says the statement here, why is it so ironic that this centurion has such faith, and yet who have we seen that does not have this kind of faith? The, yeah, Pharisees, the, the rulers, yep, yep. And in fact, if you keep your finger here and turn to uh, Mark 6, verse 6, Mark 6, verse 6, we're going to see another time that Jesus marveled, and not in a good way. So Mark 6, verse 6, this is when Jesus is in his hometown at his synagogue, at the synagogue in his hometown, I should say. So Mark 6, verse 6, and he, he let's, let's go back just a, just a hair here. Let's go to verse 4 to kind of get a start here. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and went out among the town, villages teaching. So there's a couple times here where Jesus marvels. One here in his hometown, ironic, isn't it? That he marvels there at their unbelief. And yet here marvels at the faith of this Roman centurion who has complete and total faith in Jesus. Okay? Now, let me ask you, what are some examples today of where we say to ourselves, God has said it, or Jesus has said it, and it is that way? You think of some, some instances where we say God has said something, or Jesus has said something, and that's the way it is. Any examples of that? Yeah. Versa, thank you. Communion and baptism, right? This is my body. This is my blood. He has said the word, and it is. Somebody was preaching last weekend and mentioned that when the words are Jesus are, and of God are not empty words, they have within them the power to bring into being that which they describe, right? And so baptism also, right? The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everything else. And think of all the words and promises of God in the scriptures. The Lazarus in John chapter 11, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live, right? And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He said it, and it is, right? Or John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we are blessed with the same faith that that centurion demonstrates in our text today. Simply say the word, Lord, and that's the way it is. Okay? All right. Any, oh, uh, one other thing I want to mention is in Luke, we see three centurions. There's this one here who demonstrates great faith. There's the centurion at the crucifixion, who is the first one in the Gospel of Luke to conclude after Jesus was crucified, surely he was a righteous man. Another centurion in a, in a very good light in the Gospel of Luke, 
And then we have to jump to the book of Acts. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. And in Acts chapter 10, there's a centurion who at Cornelius's house and helps Peter understand something pretty, pretty basic that nothing God has made is unclean. So these three centurions, ironically, pop up throughout two of them in the gospel of Luke, one in the book of Acts, and are seen in a very good light. You know, their, their faith is seen in a very good light. And again, Gentiles of all things. Okay. Any comments, questions on this section? Yes. Wait a minute. Lisa. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. The, the uh, question was, what about the friends? And uh, there's something else that work here too. Let's first of all say, we don't know beyond friends whether, you know, they were Jews or were they perhaps even Gentiles, you know, fellow, fellow Gentiles. And this brings up a great point. We, we, we said this back, remember when we were looking at Jesus calling Matthew and Matthew, what's the first thing Matthew does after he follows Jesus, he throws a lavish banquet for Jesus. And who's there at this lavish banquet? All the tax collectors are there, right? And so we talked about how a person coming in new to the Christian faith most times has a lot of others who are still outside the kingdom. And maybe in this case, this centurion has, has actually been actively bringing people in. We just don't know. And again, that's all speculation. I want to be clear about that. We're not told. It doesn't say that they were other Jews that were sent. And that certainly doesn't say they were Jewish elders that were sent like the first group. But that's a, that's a great question. These friends, and let's not lose the fact that all these people are witnessing this, aren't they? The centurion's friends, the Jewish elders, they're witnessing the healing of this slave of the centurion. So this is making a strong impact, not only on Jews, but on Gentiles also. Okay. Yes. Y yes. Yes, the comment was, it brings to mind the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and the ability to take everything to God in prayer, right? Oh, what peace we often forfeit, right? And oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer, right? All right, anything else? All right, let's go on to the next one, and this is going to be Jesus raising a widow's son, or bring a widow's son, I should say, from death back to life. He hasn't been buried yet. He's on a funeral fear. Now, just at the beginning here, this is, I always say, this is one of three instances that we know of where Jesus brought somebody from death back to life once again. You've got this incident here with the uh, widow's son. You've got Jairus's daughter, and you've also got Lazarus, of course, we already referenced that, in addition to Jesus' own resurrection. But I always say, were there others? Just don't know. These are the three that we have recorded and we know about, okay? And we don't want to forget what this shows us of Jesus' authority over matters of life and death. And what a comfort this is as we read about the authority that Jesus has over life and death, including our own death yet to come and that of our friends or relatives, that again, he is the one who has complete and total authority. 
Let's read through this whole account, and then we'll go back and pick up. Verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the, top, to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. All right, let's go back and, and we see here soon afterwards. So soon after, we don't know exactly how, mu how much longer, but soon after the uh, centurion's servant was healed, he, Jesus, goes to a town called Nain. It's not that far away. And notice there's a great crowd that is following him. This crowd that's following him is going to intersect with the crowd that is in the funeral procession, and the, both of these crowds are going to see something that they are never going to forget. So the great crowd went with him. Verse 12, he drew near to the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Now, what about this man? What about this guy? He is the only son of his mother. Hmm. And we hear only, it's, it's in Greek, it's monogenes. Same thing we use for only begotten son of the father. Hmm. And she was a widow. Now, why does Luke add that she was a widow? Widows in Bible times were in a very precarious situation in terms of their legal status. Many times they were taken advantage of. By, by others, and even their houses were taken away from them by a loophole, legal loophole. And he, Luke adds, that now this son has died also, and this would make her very vulnerable in society. She would be open to all kinds of, quote-unquote, legal maneuverings by others. So it's a, it's a precarious situation that she is in. Now, notice there, a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So these two crowds are coming together. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. That word for compassion is an interesting one in the original language. If I, it, it, it means like a gut-wrenching kind of being disturbed. If I say the word in Greek, you can almost, it almost sounds like it. Splaxna. Splaxna. You know, it's kind of a, a gut-wrenching thing. It's not just a passing concern. He is really moved when he sees her emotionally. You know, this is used in other, other places as well in the scriptures. It, the Good Samaritan, when the Good Samaritan comes by and sees the man beaten on the side of the road, says he had compassion on him. It's used in the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son. When the father sees his son from afar coming back, he has compassion on him and runs out toward him, okay? And so 
This word is used throughout the gospels and Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus expresses this compassion when he sees different kinds of the human condition. It's used in Matthew 9, when he looks out over the crowds who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, says he had compassion on them. So he is anything but a non-feeling, unemotional, simply going through the steps here till I get to the cross kind of savior, just the opposite. And I think I go back to your comment about, you know, we are praying to a God of all compassion, aren't we? Not one who wants to remain aloof and unemotional and detached from us, but just the opposite, okay? So he says, he had compassion on her, do not weep. Then he came up, he touched the beer. Now that detail is interesting because by touching the beer, Jesus is coming into physical contact with death and a dead body, which in the Jewish clean and unclean, would, he would be considered, an ordinary person at least, would be considered to be ceremonially unclean at that point and would have to go through various cleansing uh, rituals before they could worship once again. But with Jesus, notice, it's, it's not that he is made unclean, it's that he makes the unclean clean. He cannot be made unclean. He makes instead this death clean and brings him back to life once again. And notice there, um, how does Jesus bring this guy back to life? Does he uh, go through a bunch of shaking and, and pounding on the guy and, and all kinds of physical rituals? How does he bring him back? What's his methodology? Set up. Again, notice he does what? He says the word, right? Just like we had before with the other healing, he simply speaks the word and do you imagine what that, I mean, we, we read this very cavalierly here. Can you imagine what the people there were thinking when they saw this guy sit up in, on, the, on, the, on the stretcher? I mean, you, you would have to do a double, triple take, and it probably you, will, you would never forget that. Never. And imagine how his mother felt, you know? Just yesterday, I don't know if you had a chance to watch, I watched a little bit of the 9-11 commemoration yesterday, and boy, some of the heart-wrenching stories of people who lost their lives on that day, and multiple people from seemed a lot of families, a lot of those, as they were reading the names, two or three had the same last name. But imagine this mother who's now left alone, she's thinking, and here comes her son back to life once again. Jesus simply speaks the word, okay? And notice their fear, verse 16, fear seized them all. Why do you think they were, they were seized with fear here, do you think? <laughs> you don't normally expect people to rise from the dead, right? It's not something we, we ordinarily come into contact with. And notice their conclusion, and this kind of is a clue. How, how much did they really get here at this point in terms of Jesus? What do they say? A great prophet has arisen among us. Well, that's true, I guess, as far as it goes. He, he was a prophet in the sense that we say he's a prophet, priest, and a king, right? Jesus. So that's correct as far as it goes. And God has visited his people. And most commentators think that that's not an expression that Jesus is God yet, but that the works of God 
have come. In other words, God has visited his people through these works, namely everything they've been seeing, including now bringing somebody from death back to life once again. So at this point, it looks like the people understand by what they have confessed here that Jesus is a prophet or a great, great teacher. He did make predictions about the future, but a great teacher teaching with authority and he does the works of God. What they don't have yet, what they haven't put together yet, is that this same Jesus is going to be the one to go to the cross, to take the sins of all humanity on himself and suffer and die there alone for the sins of the people. They haven't got that yet. I just want to make a comment here. What they do have is what, unfortunately, there are some churches that teach today. If you think about it from, those, from the standpoint of those people, some of them, if not most of them, were following Jesus because he was doing great miracles, right? When Jesus feeds the 5,000 and afterward he says, you followed me because what? Your bellies were full, right? And unfortunately, there is a movement today, I guess you'd call it a movement, called the prosperity gospel, which says that God is there to make your life comfortable, healthy, wealthy, wise, get rid of all your problems for you. And, and there's a great teaching as well, but you don't hear much about a cross. You know, it, it's, it's called in some circles, it's called a theology of glory also that God is there simply to, if I say this title, you probably will figure out so that you may have your best life now. And, uh, and be, be prosperous here on this earth. And yes, it, first of all, is God, is God there to remove every, every problem, every worry, every challenge that we have in this world? No. Is that ever promised in scripture? No. Unless, well, you can twist some verses and, and believe me, they are, but no, but the theology of the cross says that even in the midst of trial and hardship and terrible things. God does some of his most incredible work, not, ne not necessarily taking the problem away or the issue away, but working within that pain and that suffering, drawing others to him, drawing others closer to him. And there's a good kind of, I think there's a good comparison here. These people following Jesus, these great crowds following him, probably didn't have it all together yet in terms of understanding what he's going to do, what he is, is there to do. It's not going to be, we won't get to this until next summer, but for the first time in Luke chapter nine, verse 22, Jesus is going to say, son of man is going to go up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be crucified and rise again on the third day. And then in, in Luke nine fifty one, Luke records how Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It's kind of like, it's kind of like putting your, your chin out there and going to Jerusalem. And from that point on, we travel with him to the cross. And it's at that point, and repeatedly, he's gonna be telling his disciples this. And remember the one time when he tells, he tells the disciples, remember what Peter says? Oh Lord, this shall never happen to you, right? And to which Jesus replies, get thee behind me, Satan, right? But for right now, hey, this is fantastic. 
He's raising people from the dead. He's healing everybody. He's casting out demons. This is fantastic. And they are filled with fear after this miracle takes place. And notice there, the, his notoriety spreads throughout the entire area, the surrounding country, and, and yet still, there are many who will not believe. Even though they have seen these things with their own eyes, they yet will not believe, including the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that are there spying on him from time to time. I don't know if you've ever thought, I used to think to myself, you know, it would have been so much easier to believe if I could have been alive at the time of Jesus. If I could have seen him and talked with him and seen these miracles, oh, it would have been so much easier to believe. But just look at all the people in the scriptures who were there, who saw these things before their very eyes and walked away. John chapter six, many of them walking away when he was teaching. And he turns to the disciples and says, will you too go away? And remember Peter's response, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? So let me just say this. There are some who compare these two miracles, the healing of the centurion's son, or a servant, rather, slave, and the raising of the widow's daughter to two miracles that are in the Old Testament done by Elijah and Elisha. Some compare the raising of the widow's son to the raising of the widow's son in Nain, or in Nain with Elijah's raising the widow's son at Zarephath. And that is found in 1 Kings 17. And the healing of the centurion's uh, slave to Elisha's healing of Naaman. Remember who had leprosy? He's the head of the Syrian army. What do they all have in common? The ones who were healed are all Gentiles. Yeah. And so we wonder, and is this a, is this a hint of what's to come? Okay. Interesting. Turn back to Luke 4, 25. And let's take a look, interestingly enough, at what Jesus makes reference to. Luke 4, 26. All right, so yeah, 26. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And she would again, Sidon would be a Gentile, right? And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is, this is his sermon at his hometown synagogue. He mentions in his sermon, interesting, he mentions these two accounts that involve Gentiles in the Old Testament. It's a hint to them that the Gentiles are going to be brought in, and they were formerly. Then take a look at, at the reaction. This is back at his hometown again. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their own town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. We've had some bad reactions to sermons before, but never quite one like that. But notice here, Jesus says this in the sermon. And then two chapters later, we've got him doing exactly this, right? Our similar thing. 
to what he just talked about in his sermon there. Okay? All right. Anything else? Any other questions? Yes, Clint? Good point. The point was that he's doing these things up north in the, in the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, but his reputation is spreading not only there, but it's going to get back to Jerusalem as well. And we're seeing here, we're going to be seeing, we've already started to see the rising opposition. Remember? We already saw that with the challenge about the Sabbath day, uh, picking of grain by his disciples and thrashing it and, and eating it. And it's going to be a continual building opposition that we are going to see. Okay. Any other comments or questions? Yes. Right. Excellent. The, the comment was that he's on sort of a, a, a continuum here, you might say, of the clean, unclean theme coming up time and time again. And although we're not in the gospel of Mark, it was, was it last week or the week before? Jesus said, it's not what goes into someone that makes them unclean, but what comes out of them that makes them unclean. For out of the heart come, and all he lists a whole bunch of things. And Mark there parenthetically, in case you missed it, said, he therefore did away with all of the dietary laws at that point. So you're right. What makes a person clean or unclean is, we would say what? Faith in Jesus Christ, right? It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin and all unrighteousness. That is what makes one clean. Not what someone eats, not what someone comes into contact with. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. So, yes, yeah, so we're to see we're to see him challenging. Boy, wait till we. That's like I guess it'll be next summer as well. Wait till we get to Luke 15, and he is eating with sinner tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees, Luke makes a point of saying the Pharisees are going to be sitting there murmuring or grumbling about the fact that he's actually eating with sinners. Can you imagine? Okay. All right. Any other comments or questions? Those are good. All right. Let's go on. And now messengers from John the Baptist are going to be coming. And let's read through this. And I'll stop right before Jesus starts talking about John the Baptist. Sorry, verse 18 now. The disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him, to John, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the goodness preached to them. And blessed is, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is a very, at least to me, is a very interesting incident that occurs here. John the Baptist is in prison at this point. Remember why he was thrown into prison? For objecting to the incestuous marriage of uh, Herod Antipas. And we talked about that some time ago, is married to her one uncle, first of all, Philip, and then goes over and is married to her other uncle, brother of Philip. 
And John the Baptist speaks out against this marriage and for that is thrown in prison. He later, of course, is going to be beheaded. I won't go through that whole story. So he's in prison and he sends two of his disciples, which it indicates to us that John the Baptist had disciples also, had students, had followers in the same way Jesus did. And the question that he asks, are you the one to come or should we look for another? I'll tell you what, there's been a lot of ink used on these verses. There are two main theories. The one theory is that John was not doubting here at all, not one iota, but he wanted his disciples to hear Jesus say, yes, I am the one. You know, I am the one that you should expect. The other theory is that John was experiencing some questions. Where is he now? Prison, right? This is the same John who in John 1 verse 29 points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you can argue it both ways. People who say that, oh, John wasn't doubting at all would point to some, some very credible things like all that the angel told Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? And all that they knew about John the Baptist and so on. And you think, boy, if anybody, and then remember Elizabeth and Mary are cousins, right? You would think, boy, if anybody is going to be true to the end, it's it'd be John, right? And, and was John sort of a milquetoast guy, kind of go with the wind? No, just the opposite, right? So that's the one side that would say that, you know, and there are, there are many scholars who are on that side. There are also many scholars on the other side that say things weren't looking like the kingdom of God coming, right? Here I am in prison. There's so much opposition. Uh, was, was John thinking he's going to die there in prison? He did end up dying there in prison. You know, things sure aren't looking like I thought they were going to look when the Messiah is coming, right? What's wrong with this picture? And maybe he was having doubts. We just don't know. Well, I'll save that for a little bit later. I was, there's another point I want to make here. So those are the two theories. And I, the only thing I will say is this. I preached on this uh, at least a year ago. It must have been a year ago when we were in a Luke series. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that this was some great plan by John so that his disciples could hear Jesus say this. There's nothing in the text. It's simply a matter-of-fact reporting of what happened, okay? So we can't, we can't point to anything in the text that says that John really did believe and just wanted his disciples to hear this. We really can't. There's nothing there. Now, how does Jesus respond to this question? He could have responded very simply and said what? Yep, I'm the guy. You don't have to look for anybody else. I'm the guy. I'm here, right? But he doesn't do that. He refers to the things that were supposed to happen. In fact, he points back to Isaiah chapter 61, chapter 42, chapter 58. He points to the things that are supposed to be happening when the Messiah comes. Okay? Now, and those things include 
the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, turn back. Now I'm going to find it this time, a lot faster. Turn back to Luke 4. We're going to go right back to the same sermon, Luke 4, 18 through 21. This is when Jesus is in his hometown synagogue. And remember, they bring him the school, and it's opened up to Isaiah. And he reads, and it was the custom that the ruler of the synagogue would pick a teacher to teach on that text that day. So they open the scroll and verse, um, uh, sorry, we got to go back to verse 18. Here's what Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, starting of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Nice short sermon, huh? There's, what's he saying there? Isaiah 61, Today is fulfilled before your eyes. In other words, what Isaiah is, is predicting is going to happen when the Messiah comes is actually happening now before your very eyes. That's, this sermon is one bookend here in Luke 4. We're in Luke 7, and what does Jesus repeat? The very same prophecy, and go back and tell John what you see. All these things are happening, the blind receiving their sight, and so are good news preached to the poor. And what does he do in between Luke 4 and Luke 7? He's doing it all. He's doing all the actions. And so you see that these are almost like bookends. Here's the sermon in a synagogue, and Jesus is saying, it's fulfilled before you. Then he goes out and does all these things, including bringing the, the dead back to life once again. And then he answers the question from John the Baptist with the very same evidence. In other words, it is fulfilled in your hearing. Go back and tell John what you see and what you have heard. It's all coming true. Okay? All right, we got about three, four minutes. I said that John may have been doubting if he was doubting because things sure weren't looking like he probably thought they were supposed to look when the kingdom of God, when the Messiah is going to come, right? Are there things around us today that don't look quite like we would like them to look or think they should look, right? You look, well, we spoke them, let's take a minute. Well, be a couple things that just to your, to your thinking just don't look right for the kingdom of God in our day and age. The what? House Bill Five. I'm not familiar with House Bill Five, but <laughs> I don't want to get I don't want to get political here. Against religion, okay. I, I'm not familiar. I'm, I'm genuinely not familiar with House Bill Five, but in general, we could say uh, sort of a a uh, negative, almost attack on the church this day, right? And 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 I also think of the of the uh, just evil in general that we see around us in our world in our society. And, and again, it's, it's those things that God calls us, even in the midst of them, to have faith, to believe. 
Yep, it's in our it's in our country, it, and and the kingdom of God in so many ways is hidden, isn't it? It's not out there. You're not going to see it on ABC and NBC and CBS or any other. Well, you might see it on Christian, obviously Christian broadcast. Were you, were you going to say something? Sure. Yeah. Okay. 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 All right. So, the, yeah, the comment was: it seems like the worse things get, the more people tend to rail against the. Christians in the kingdom of God and turn more, more toward secular governors, rulers, and so on. Okay. The other aspect, just real briefly to bring out is Jesus ends that uh, verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me or scandalized, it can be translated by me. When you think about it, the people in his hometown were scandalized by him because they were too familiar with him, weren't they? Is this, remember what they, what they said? Is this not the carpenter's son who, you know, grew up here? And it, what, he's saying these crazy things out here. They were too familiar with him, right? Or thought they were anyway. And so they weren't believing that he is the Messiah. This, this verse is often, or has been pointed to at the seminary is the reason why you don't send a guy back to be the pastor of a church he grew up in because <laughs> they're too familiar with him. It, do, it has worked. In fact, my, in fact, my home congregation that I grew up in is in that exact situation right now. But it, and I'm saying this jokingly, but they, they were too familiar with him. And then there are others who just simply Jesus did not fit their description of what the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. Namely, he did not come with vengeance. Remember last week, again, somebody was preaching, talked about the vengeance and recompense of God, and Jesus doesn't seem to be bringing the vengeance. In fact, just the opposite. He seems to be bringing compassion toward people. And in the minds of a lot of Jews, the wrong kind of people he's having compassion with and for, okay? And so, they are scandalized because Jesus does not look the way they thought he should look. He's not doing the kinds of things they thought he should be doing. So both those who, you know, knew him so well, apparently thought they knew him so well. And, you know, we could talk, we're out of time, but we could talk about what are, what are things today that tend to scandalize people outside of the church concerning Jesus and concerning following him. We all hope that we are just the opposite effect on people, right? Outside of the kingdom, that we are a light in the midst of the darkness to draw people to Jesus and hope and pray that we're never uh, one that would turn people away or scandalize people. Yes. Oh yeah, that's a good point. The point was verse 23, perhaps is, is also a verse of comfort for John or reassurance for John, right? Blessed is the one, even though you're in prison. Yeah, good point. All right. With that, we bring the curtain down on Luke until next summer sometime. And I, I know I speak for Pastor Wade. We really enjoyed doing this study, going at a little slower pace and looking at some things as we go through. We only got through, not even through seven chapters, but anyway, I hope it's been uh, helpful for you as well. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Amen.